Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Invention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Oh, yeah. Hello, everybody. It's me. It's Joe. Back again for another episode of Hold the Line. So I've got another interview for you today. We haven't had any interviews recently because I've been so busy with our new GSP puppy that, you know, just scheduling an interview and then knowing that I'm going to be able to sit at my computer and interview someone has been a little bit difficult until now. But the puppy is now 16 weeks and things, you know, we're starting to get into a nice routine and it's been possible to do a couple of interviews, which is excellent. So today I'm bringing you an interview with Jane Arden. Jane owns and works Cocker Spaniels, and she lives north of Manchester in the UK in a town called Bury. She runs an organisation called Wagawuffins, which began as a canine activity centre and is now Wagawuffins Canine College. Through Wagawuffins, she offers all kinds of courses, classes and seminars, both in person and online. Jane was the Dog Trainer of the Year in 2015 for the Kennel Club's Accredited Instructor Scheme. She's a full member of the APDT UK and a member of the Co-op Association of Pet Behaviourists and Trainers. She is also an accredited animal behaviourist with ICANN and a Gundal Club accredited instructor. Jane takes great interest in what she calls impulse control, which I think is useful for everyone who owns a dog, really, but is especially useful for owners of gun dogs, obviously. In 2020, her book called Mission Control was published, and you can pick up a copy from Amazon. Jane has a popular online community which is very gundog orientated and her newest venture is Smart Pup which provides puppy owners with a box of treats, toys and training equipment and an accompanying training manual for their puppy's stage of development. In 2018, Nick Benger interviewed Jane for his own podcast and this is also a really great listen for anyone who wants to learn more from Jane and that was in episode 21 of Dog Talk with Nick Benger. So that's episode 21 of dog talk with nick benger that's the name of the podcast so you go check that out if you want to catch up with that earlier interview with jane before we get into this interview i should also just say that jane at several moments in the interview mentions going to see quote unquote helen for training purposes or talking to quote unquote helen by this she means helen phillips author of click a gun dog but i just didn't want to interrupt her to clarify that in the interviews because she was kind of in the flow of explaining something but i just thought i'd point it out here before we get started anyway without further ado let's get on with it Hold the line. I just want to sort of jump right in. I have to also say that I have listened or actually re-listened to Nick Benger's interview of you in 2018 on his podcast. So that was quite interesting because that was like a couple of years ago. And I thought, well, I want yeah. to catch up with Jane on a few of the things that she's talked about there. Um, so, so yeah. So basically, one of the things that I learned from that podcast, which I didn't know about, is that you kind of have a background in showing originally. Is that, that, is yeah. that true? Yeah. 
Yeah, so um, I got my first Leonberger in 1996 and decided to have a go at dog showing. Um, so I was showing Leonbergers probably for about 20 years. Um, wow. And I also then had a Polish lowland sheepdog, um, which was imported from Poland, big international show lines. Um, and that was actually my daughter's dog because um, she used to come around the show circuit with me and Leonbergers were a little bit big for an 11-year-old yeah. <laughs> to handle. So she wanted her own show dog. So we did, I said to her, you need to pick something that's in the work in a pastoral group because I can't afford to go on different days. Um, <laughs> and she was 11, so she wanted something that she could brush. Right. <laughs> her criteria. Um so we went for the Polish Lowland Sheepdog because they're a rare breed. So the, the class numbers were quite small. And I think when you're a little kid, um, she was statistically more likely to do well <laughs> in a small numerical breed. Um, anyway, she turned 14 and lost interest in dogs. So I ended up carrying on showing him. <laughs> um, and we made him up to a show champion. And then I retired him, I think, when he was about eight years old. And then I stopped. So, yeah. But when you went into Spaniels, as it were, that you didn't go with a, a sort of showbred Spaniel. You went for a working cocker. Is that right? And if so, why? So I um, was doing a lot of behaviour work at the time. And we have a local um, dog puppy superstore in Manchester, um, which sells puppy farmed puppies. Um, and I was doing a lot of behaviour work and I was seeing a lot of resource guarding cockers, mostly from puppy farm lines, but also show lines and quite a bit of aggression. And although I was kind of falling in love with working cockers, um, I wasn't falling in love with show cockers <laughs> so much. Um, and again, you know, you know yourself, you always see the worst in most breeds don't you when you're a trainer and behaviorist yeah um so I'd had I've been just had a few working cockers in class um and I really really liked them and after trying to motivate Leonbergers for 20 years I decided to accept my breed limitations <laughs> and um get something with a little bit of oomph about it so that was why I went down the working cocker route um and I also made the mistake of deciding to get one with a big red pedigree full of field trial champions because then I knew it definitely wouldn't have any show cocker in it <laughs> <laughs> so I went from Leonbergers to this red hot trialing type <laughs> did you not feel that you're sort of leaving behind a sort of well in leaving behind confirmation because you wouldn't be able to show your working cocker that you were leaving behind something that you'd done for what was it 20 years you said and you, it was kind of a new whole new undertaking to go into yeah I mean I'd, I'd I'd kind of stopped showing um Snoopy quite um kind of around that around kind of that time and I'd kind of lost interest in the show scene anyway and because I own Snoopy in partnership what I had decided um, was that I kind of owed it to Terry to at least make him up to a champion. 
um, because she'd kind of let us let us have him, and obviously he was he was bought to be shown. So I can really continued for the last couple of years showing is really just to make Snoopy up. So I had kind of um, lost a little bit of interest. Secretly, I think I do miss it um, <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> Um, but I think with all dog sports, it's rather controversial. And I do believe that, um, you know, you you it's it's a game that you play. <laughs> and, you need, and you need to learn to play the game if you want to win. <laughs> so you got your your working cocker, your first working cocker mm-hmm. with this field trial pedigree. And what happened then? So she was fantastic because I had this little dog that was just like would train and train and train and train. Um, and was motivated to do loads of stuff so I did loads of stuff with her and we trained and trained and trained and trained Um, and actually she was really good I had a 100% recall off her I had loads of focus she was just absolutely fantastic everything that I'd expected and then at 16 months I decided to um, have a go at this gun dog malarkey Um, and I introduced her to game and um, I came home with a different dog. <laughs> <laughs> so you mean, do you take her on a shoot? Does that mean? I took her on a, a live game training day. Right. Um, and she went up. The only way I can describe it is she went up about 15 gears. Um, awakened an instinct, lost all control, lost all focus. Um, she was a beast. She, um, I remember her diving in the stream chasing a bird um scrambling through the brambles ran through an electric fence picked this shot bird up and back through the electric fence straight back in the water um she was just this little monster (laughs) and presumably the effects of that they weren't just limited to that one day it was that you could see you know when you took her out the next day that that had a sort of yeah I mean I, I took her just to back to our local park and she wouldn't even look at me she was just screaming to be off the lead. <laughs> so what did you do with that? What did I, I was like, oh, my God, what have I done to this <laughs> dog? Um, so obviously I'd kind of decided that I'd like to maybe have a go at this gun dog malarkey and maybe, you know, trial her like you do when you've got your first dog. Oh, let's get one and trial her. And then suddenly I had this dog that wouldn't even look at me. You know, I, I was going on training days. It was two hours before I could get any connection off her. The environment completely over aroused her. Um, and that was a real knock for me because I thought it was quite a good dog trainer. <laughs> <laughs> Dogs are a great leveller. like whoa what do I do with this um and I actually I went to I went to Helen's a couple of times and even Helen was quite gobsmacked at how the limited experience had had quite an impact on her she'd become intensely obsessed with retrieving um and we actually did some shot with her and we tried to extinguish her obsession with the retrieve associated with shot um, and it took 26 shots for her to even think about quitting. Wow. Um, and she was doing stuff like like running off on, on the scent of the shot as well, just following the gunpowder scent. And she was absolutely nervous. Um And I ended up going up to um, Andy Cullen. Right. Um, and I had a conversation with Andy because he is a traditional gun dog trainer. Um, and I said to Andy, I really need somebody to help me 
understand this dog to help me resolve the problems that I've got. Um, I said, but I'm not going to get hold of her and beat her up or anything like that. And I was like, are you willing to help me? Um, so I went up to Andy a few times and we had um, a compromise that that um, we would always discuss how he would approach it and so on. Um, and he was really good, to be fair. Um, she was set up for success. Um, we worked with live game because he had pigeons. He has home right. and pigeons, so we were able to work with live games. Now, while all this was going on, um, I was kind of taking this dog. I could do demos you know, on a on an open day somewhere with dummies, and she was steady as a rock. <laughs> so it's just a game. It was it was it was just if it had a heartbeat and fur or feather, um, that I would just lose complete control of her. Um, so what was great was Andy had a courtyard, an enclosed courtyard, so he could release the pigeons and they could fly out of the courtyard. So she couldn't she couldn't get them. So the setup was brilliant, and that was one of the reasons I went to Andy because we had the the kind of live game opportunity for training, which was where my massive problem was. Um, and she improved loads. Um, did loads and loads. I had to go right back to basics with her, really, really make sure that my foundations were solid because what I did learn is that they weren't that solid. Um, so we had to go right back to basics with her. Um, and then we ended up, what I actually did with her because it was the chase and the retrieving that she was obsessed about is we completely took the retrieve out of the equation. Um, and we channeled her back into hunting so she would hunt, flush, hunt. So we created a new pattern. Instead of hunt, flush, stop, retrieve, it was just hunt, flush, stop, hunt. Right. So um, she was, was she kind of, before that, she was anticipating the retrieve. So she wasn't steady. She was like just running in as soon as the. Yeah. Uh, and and if there was, if there was somebody on a field with a gun, she would just stare at them. Right. <laughs> um yeah and she didn't she she hadn't actually made what was interesting was she hadn't made the connection that the birds were in the ground at all so she wouldn't even hunt she was just visually obsessed with watching the sky oh right that's interesting so although she had flushed she, she just bumped them up she hadn't seen them so she she also hadn't made that connection um so so what we did with her was we we chan we we just changed the reinforcer to back to hunting um and she's a hunting little hunting demon um and I got to the point where she she we I took a beating for three seasons four seasons um as a beating dog and she was great and she watched the birds away and just go back down and hunt quite happily yeah. Um, initially she was always a challenge on open ground but when we worked in wood and the birds flew out the wood and the shot occurred away from the wood on the fields um, she was really really good so actually taking her beating and work continuing working with that process and giving her lots of fresh scent to work to to go back and hunt on and um, really really improved so that was a huge learning curve for me right um, she still keeps me on my toes she's a very 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 independent dog when she's hunting um and I always say to people you know is she stopping on the stop whistle I go no she's just stopping because she chooses to <laughs> how old is she now then she is 10 all right she is still wild <laughs> so then at some point you got you added more spaniels to your spaniel yes yeah, so I did all this well let's get another one <laughs> Let's start it from the beginning this time instead of yeah, 16 let's, months. Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's try again. Um, so so I got the stick um, and 
you'll know from what's its story that was rather a interesting time of my life as my partner said I couldn't have another dog um so I moved out and got the stick right um, this is when you were camping in your house I was camp- yeah because my my house was rented out but I'd actually um started to it was it was empty and I decided to renovate it um so it actually been completely gutted there was no woodwork in it at all no doors doors frames skirting boards no kitchen it, it was completely empty um so I moved back in there and camped I had running water okay folks it's time for a whistle pause a whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me and apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle Pause. Let's get back to the show. I guess the good thing is there's not much of a puppy to destroy if the house is kind of... No, there wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a good bonding session. We were all sleeping in the kitchen together. Um, So, yeah, um, I decided to get the stick um he kind of came along what had actually happened was I'd mate I'd actually mated pickles to a dog and she didn't get pregnant and I was hoping to have a puppy and then I was kind of like oh I was really going to have another puppy but I haven't so I ended up getting stick instead <laughs> um so yeah and stick was his field trial winner to field trial champion bred um he's very different to pickles um he's he's definitely easier he's definitely much more level-headed he's still got the drive he's he's more kind of um I would say soft (laughs) um in comparison to pickles he's 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 quite happy to work with you as a team um and kind of yeah be part of a team where pickles was kind of like you know you you stay there you're slowing me down and do you think part of the reason that he's easier is that he started things from the very beginning and he was a little puppy or do you think that's just his nature and his I genetics think, and- I think it's his I think it's his nature and genetics he's definitely a different a different personality um I do think bitches and dogs are different as well I do find bitches definitely my bitches are more hardcore hunting than my boys are um and he 
um yeah he was just lovely to train um very nice the big mistake i made with him was because i wanted to manage um arousal because arousal was the big problem with pickles um and she would really just lose the plot and there would be no coming back from it. I'd have plenty of screaming incidents with her. Um, I I remember um, Helen coming up and doing some cat stuff at Waggle Wuffins. And um, when we'd finished the training day, I said to Helen, will you come and have a look at this? And we actually set the Bolton rabbit up on the, connected it to the wall in the training centre. And I released the Bolton rabbit and Pickles was screaming on the end of the lead um like just screaming and Helen said take her out into reception so we took her out into reception we closed the doors to the training area and Helen said take a lead off I took a lead off and she was just like flinging herself at the door and still screaming and um, and Helen just said you've got your work cut out there haven't you and, and off you went <laughs> Um, and and I remember the day I managed to get autosits to the Bolton Rabbit it was quite an amazing experience for me because of how bad she was. Um, so I did a lot of what I did with Stig was I did a lot of managing his arousal levels and keeping him cool and calm and settled. So the first time we went on a shoot, um, I took him on Beater's Day and I just said, I'll, I'll just take, bring one of my young dogs with me because um, I'm not very good shot. <laughs> um so what i actually did with him was we just did heel work and we hunted behind the beating line so all the birds had gone had been moved on so we just did some connection stuff behind the beating line in the wood and then what we did was um i just worked on settle between drives um and he was fantastic so he was a dog that you know you could take on a shoot and he was absolutely you know just lovely because he managed his arousal so well um, but then I came across the problem that when there was heavy cover and he knew there was birds in it, he um, he wouldn't get in because it was going to hurt. Unlike Pickles, who went through the electric fences and... Didn't care. Yeah. I now had this dog who was stood squeaking on the outside of the cover. So I actually created noise. As a consequence, I always say to people, you, you, you never make the same mistakes, <laughs> you just make different ones. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So that was a huge learning curve. Um, so then I ended up with a dog who was potentially noisy, which, which you know, we've, we've worked through. Um, he's got his working gun dog certificate on game. Um, so, you know, the majority of the time he's fine. Um, but we do have the odd squeak here and there. That does happen. But I don't know whether the majority of cockers have the odd squeak here and there. And will you get into cover now, or, or how did you? Yeah, he'll, that? he'll yeah he'll just he'll just 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 and what I had to do was just let the arousal go up, just build up the arousal. But what was nice, we had a lot of foundation control that we were able to maintain as we increased arousal. Um. So so that for me was really interesting because you know when people often talk in, in a pet dog context, you know, it's about how do we calm the dog? Everyone's like, how do I calm the dog? How do I teach the settle? And mm. the huge learning curve for me was, was actually for a working dog, you need controlled arousal, control while yes. in arousal, as opposed to a calm dog. Yeah. So arousal is always a positive necessary thing rather than something that you don't, you don't want to have any of. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so then um, I, bred pickles to a field trial winning dog and I kept Mia 
her daughter, who is just as wild as she is. <laughs> um, but she is she's definitely softer and likes to be with you. There's definitely a team aspect to to Mia. Um, but we did a lot of connection stuff very, very early on. Um, and she's she's very high. She's she's a fabulous hunting dog. Um, she's when she goes on the shoot, they always say Mia finds all the birds. <laughs> and with Pickles, how did you go from a dog which was like screaming to get into the room where the bolting rabbit was to a dog which would do the auto sit to the bolting rabbit? Do you want to talk about how you went through that process? So really, we I started with just the bolting rabbit being on the floor. <laughs> still yeah <laughs> just, just just dead on the floor lay there yeah um and we um we just worked on capturing auto sits um and just control around that oh wait i just it just occurred to me sorry that i should explain because there might be people in north america who don't know what a bolting rabbit is and they're not gonna be able to follow it oh right yeah i don't know what they're talking about so <laughs> so a bolting rabbit is like a dummy on a giant piece of elastic which you release one end of and it fires it across the ground really fast so it simulates a bolting rabbit i think that's probably yes but it's, it's yeah. just a furry dummy on yeah. a bungee card <laughs> <laughs> and it's good for um, pressing steadiness and setting things yeah. up yeah so so I know when I first because when I first got it I mean from from a traditional training point of view what they would usually do and I think I know when I got my bolting rabbit through there was a little kind of um training what to do with the bolting rabbit exercise that came with it um which was really about putting the dog on a check cord firing off the bolting rabbit and correcting them so as a positive trainer I was like well we're not going to do it like that um so it was so for me it was very much about breaking criteria down so the dog was successful so first it was could she you know control her impulse to want to go and get it and also learn to have a different reward because that was one of the keys is learning that the, the the you know the thing that you find isn't always the thing that you you can't always get it when you're a spaniel that's what Labrador right. for <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I always say to people, you know, the ultimate in frustration tolerance is to crash through the brambles, dive through rivers, um, find a tucked in bird, flush it out, um, sit and then watch a Labrador retrieve it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's very much it was very much about her learning to that she cannot have that, but she was going to have different rewards instead. Um, and then all I did with the bolting rabbit was because it was just on the wall was I just started to just um, just move it a little bit. So just so it, it moved really slowly and she could control herself. And then I just increased the intensity of movement. So did you not extend the elastic so far then? Because that makes it go faster, doesn't it? The yeah. So all I did was I just pulled it. So it was just literally to its kind of normal length and just put, you know, just like an inch of extra pull on it. So it just moved a little bit. And when I let go... And then I just pulled it out further and further as long as she was successful. Um, and then to the point that we could do it and she could she could offer an auto set. Um, and I've got a video on YouTube of that with the stick um, showing him doing it because I did that with him from from being a little puppy. That impulse control stuff straight away about um, auto sit, which is just auto sit to movement. Yeah. So that probably brings us onto your book a little bit because you, you had a book published yeah, this year I think it's this this year I think called Mission Mission Control. Yes. Yeah, um, it's excellent. So congratulations on on Thank the book. You. Um, 
you must be feeling very relieved that it's out there and it's it's done <laughs> yeah so so um I was approached by the publishers to write a book um and I think I, I was they originally discussed about me writing one on motivation um which I was quite good at when I had Liam Burgers <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so we kind of had a discussion and I said, you know, a lot of the stuff that I'm working with now is, is impulse control stuff. And it's not really about dogs that lack motivation. It's really about dogs that are motivated to do the things that we don't want them to do um, and controlling impulses. So um, I was running my crazy canines course at the time. Um, so the book was originally going to be called Controlling Crazy Canines. Um, but as it took me three years to write it, <laughs> um, it kind of evolved <laughs> um, over th- over kind of the time. And I covered a lot of the motion centered training in there as well, which was very much um, kind of how I like to work is, is kind of going beyond observable behavior and looking at emotion and arousal. I see a lot of people with um, who've trained dogs and either the dog lacks motivation so there's no arousal um, so the training isn't really training for the real world because the dog's not in the right mindset um, or you get the other extent where the dog's kind of in a sit being steady physically but emotionally maybe it's having shaking it's squeaking and it's not controlling itself um, from an arousal point of view and I think when you know when we're training dogs positively they always have a choice and I don't think a dog will ever choose to be um, emotionally negative whether that's frustration or boredom and when we want them to not chase rabbits and not chase deer and hare and, and, and birds and all that kind of stuff when they're out in the field is it's really important that the behaviors that we train have attached positive emotion to them because if we want because you know there's obviously much positive emotion involved in chasing a rabbit um so if we want the dog to not chase the rabbit it's for me it's very much about the emotion you attach to your behaviors if you want them to be strong behaviors that work under pressure yeah what was interesting for me is well, there's many interesting things, but one interesting thing from from your book was the idea of using, because I think you, with the auto sit, you started with, um, like you said, the, that movement itself is a cue to sit. And so yeah. by the time the dog flushes a pheasant, it's just another thing that they're just flushing, another thing that goes up, like many other things have gone up in the past. And starting with, you know, a ball or even a motion of throwing a ball and then using the tennis ball. Um, and then you got onto flirt poles and using flirt poles. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about all of that is the idea of do you let the dog get the thing as a reward for the steadiness or do you not? And it seems that you are on the side of not letting them get like almost using these these as proofing devices or proofing tools rather than letting using them as a reinforcer after the steadiness. Yeah, so I always think on for, for me, I think um, is is if we think about a gun dog working in the field, there's never any reason why we would want them to chase something without our permission. Um, so, and I always think that first learning is the strongest. So for me, I think if you've got a young dog, if the dog's first learning is something moves and you stop. Um, then that kind of builds some real solid foundations from a 
from a working gun dog point of view, there are times when they may have to go chase a runner, but that would always be on permission. Right. Um, to go to go at that point. So one of the things I do with the flirt pole is I'll teach auto sits first, but then I will do a cue to chase once the dog's steady. Right. Um, but in the most occasions, I think if, if we want to kind of set them up for success in the real world, is these dogs do do, um, especially kind of a spaniel beating on a, sh- on a shoot, um, is there's not a lot of retrieving going on. So I think helping them learn to cope with the fact that they, they flush, they stop and they don't get the thing. Um, that they get an alternative and actually building a mindset where there's value in the alternative um so for me um yes absolutely with the flirt pole you know i use the flirt pole with my leonberger because um she had a chasing problem um and she um i use the leonberger the the flirt pole with the leonberger to actually kind of build drive onto toys um but my kind of argument is when it comes to my cockers i don't need to build drive no, no. <laughs> so you kind of make sure you've got this the kind of steadiness and the stop and the automatic response to movement being to stop and then once you feel that that's established then you will occasionally give the cue to chase as the reward but often yeah. also not give the cue to chase and often give an alternative reward is that right yeah yeah so for me on the, on the most occasions the dog would have um an alternative reward um, because I think about building that mindset that actually have it, leaving something and having something else um, is reinforcing and is valuable to the dog and becomes just a normal part, an acceptable part of their life um, is kind of really, really key. So but then sometimes they can they can have the thing um, because, again, that's potentially part of their job. Stig, Stig loves a good runner. <laughs> and would you, when, with the alternative reward, would that be you know, a ball that you're throwing, like something that they can chase, or would you deliver food, for example, or something, you know, so you're staying away from. Yeah. So I would, I would mix, always mix it up with kind of food and toys and sometimes environmental reinforcer. Um, so again, one of the things with a young dog is, you know, the first time they f- usually flush something, it usually does startle them. So you get a little window of opportunity. And what I will often do at that point then is when they stop is I'll kind of just go, good. <laughs> and then they go, what did I do? I've just had a verbal marker. And then I'll encourage them down on the fresh scent. Um, so one of the things I would never expect is a young and experienced dog who doesn't have good impulse control to be able to do a sit stay after it's just flushed something. Um, so I would give them a movement reinforcer because I know that their body, their, their body's probably just prepared itself for action on the flush. Um, so asking a young and experienced dog to then do stillness when, you know, its muscles are ready for action and everything about the dog is ready for action. So I'll give them an action reinforcer and that might be either catching treats off me um, or going down and just hunting on the fresh scent because the fresh scent just keeps them nice and tight as well. So they still get that sort of they get an, an alternative place to direct that kind of I want to chase something urge. Yeah, so it is. I I kind of like to look at it in its in its kind of simplicity as as drive to move or drive to be still. For you, it's like moving between different states of stillness and action and stillness and action. Yeah, and yeah. trying to be in control over helping the dog move between those states. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see that in spaniels. They're very sort of 
still and then they move and then they're still and then they move they have that quality yeah thing. and <laughs> yeah and and i think you know i always say to people you know that they're kind of designed to go 300 miles an hour stop 300 miles an hour stop and i think it's very e- that's a very easy thing to to achieve because it's kind of part of their genetics and i think when you pair stillness with movement um, it's just using pre-max so st- the stillness part becomes highly reinforcing because it's just a part of the game yes um so i like to pair stillness with movement to to kind of build up that um kind of those those sequences because that is kind of part of their the job that they do and i also think that especially you know the, the kind of real hot zippy little spaniels is I think that's why they find heel work so challenging as well, because I don't think they're designed to move slowly. <laughs> I think it's either, all, it's like all or nothing. Yeah. Um. So I think teaching them to move slowly. And one of the things I found hugely successful with heel work training is rather than kind of focusing on the lead um, and loose lead walking and kind of, heel work is is also actually focusing on um capturing and reinforcing the dog's pace of movement so they get reinforced for actually walking because i think again what you can end up with sometimes is a dog that's in the heel position but it's like it looks really awkward because it's still rushing yes a little (laughs) bit like a racehorse being led into the whatever yeah yeah and i think it looks really awkward and I think they're holding the position, but they still haven't developed the skill to actually move at a slow pace. Um, and I think if when they're little puppies, when you see them walk, and if you can capture and reinforce walking behaviour and slow pace behaviour, then you can build that into something that gets repeated. And I think if you can help, especially the zippy wild ones, to actually learn to move at a slow pace is really, really helpful for them, especially from a heel work training point of view. I really like this idea of of the stillness and the movement and the idea that the stillness is is anticipation of the movement that's about to happen and that then the stillness itself becomes really reinforcing because it predicts the movement that's about to happen and it all kind of goes around in this really nice cycle of everything reinforcing everything else that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. And I think I know with mine, when we're kind of just on the field and playing is is they will come in and offer me a set. So I'll release them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah um, that's like what the, happens at the flush isn't it it's still so they get told they can hunt on <laughs> yeah yeah um and yeah it just becomes this part of a, of a great game and it's like the, the dog can kind of um you know the the kind of just using playing games with a release cue is the dog suddenly goes i've got control over my ability to be given permission to be released but i have to be still to be given permission to release so they start to choose an awful of stillness yeah and your book goes into all of this in so much more detail with so many more exercises that it's possible to to do yeah i love proofing behavior yeah <laughs> and the book's great not just for people who want to have a working gun dog either but for people who just want to understand all of this some more and to get some more control over their dog generally even if they're just pet pet owners of gun dogs it's going to be really useful for them yeah when i know when um i wrote the book one of the things that they said to me was that it had to be written in a in a way that was accessible to all um so I kind of wanted to put a bit of science in there um although I'm not 
actually a massively sciencey person. I'm definitely more of a practical, <laughs> just getting on with it kind of person. Um, but obviously, I've done some kind of research and learning, the, just really trying to understand what, you know, when you do stuff, you think, why does that work? Why does that happen? So it's good to kind of open some books and try and look at the theory side of that and, and pair pair those things together. Um, so that's what I've tried to do in the book and um, also, you know, make it accessible for all people. Yeah, I like you often talk about what's going on in the brain and, you know, why how the connect what the connection is between what's happening in the brain and the dog's behavior and I think it's really nice because it sort of it really helps people not you know label the dog as I think even if they understand learning theory there's still part of you which thinks you're just being disobedient or you're just not responding and people get very frustrated but when you sort of think about it on the level of the brain then suddenly it gives you this whole level of understanding which makes it much harder to blame the dog or to get frustrated or you know it gives you a different way to look at what's happening yeah, and I think you know, before I wrote the book, um, I did, um, I'd got into mindfulness, mm. um, and mindfulness. There's kind of a lot of research and science behind mindfulness in humans, and a lot of the mindful stuff is about um, stopping and thinking and making cognitive decisions instead of impulsive ones. And you know that kind of moved me on to looking at dogs and thinking about you know literally every single behavior problem that people have with their dogs is because the dog is impulsive and not cognitive. And working through myself and practicing mindfulness um, made me realize how you're really rewiring your brain to to function differently you're firing neurons differently you're building new networks and I would say from my experience it takes a good two years for you to be able to start to do that without too much kind of thought process um, and concentration focus on your ability to do that when it starts to become natural um, now we know um, there's plasticity in dogs brains because we know they can recover from operations and so on um, and injuries um, so I was like you know really when we're training our dogs it's not just about behavior we're doing the same thing we're actually asking them to rewire their brain and, and asking them to be more cognitive and use their prefrontal cortex rather than their limbic system and just be impulsive and reactive to their instincts so it's an equivalent of mindfulness for dogs yeah, so so I because I did a course on mindfulness for dogs and it was very much about about helping people understand and obviously part of the book incorporates um the kind of science around that is really so you know I say to people you're not you it, it's not just about learning a behavior and then following an instruction for me I think it goes way beyond that and I think it it's about you it's about the dog developing skills to to control its impulses so I always say it's it's skills not behavior right it's about somehow getting in there between stimulus and response I think you said so yeah so um Stephen Covey who's nothing to do with dogs <laughs> he writes like self-help books um one of the things he says and he, he actually got the quote from a guy called Viktor Frankl who was a holocaust survivor um and he says that there is a space between stimulus and response um and what we should do is is work within that space and grow that space and strengthen that space so we we make better decisions about how our life affects us um and he says that's something that we personally have control over and I think you know 
even sometimes when I'm working with reactive dogs, is there's I, the first thing I always do when someone presents me with a reactive dog is I have a look at how much space there is between stimulus and response. <laughs> because if we have space between stimulus and response, that's where I'll start. Yeah, so it's almost as if there's there's the option to change it from sort of unthinking reaction, really, to, to a thinking, more thoughtful yeah. response. And at first, that might be quite a slow response because there's think there's a lot of conscious thinking involved. But then, with repetition, it becomes more second nature. Yeah, and I and I do I do think that the dog has to stop. And you know, if, if we think about it from a neuroscience point of view, it's a different pathway, and it's probably a weak pathway or a new pathway. <laughs> And then and then practice will strengthen that. And I know when I do auto sits to movement, the first time you put the movement in, the dog stops and you can see it going, oh, you was going to throw the thing and you've interrupted me. And then they're like, um, and they were like, I was doing auto sits. And then they kind of do a sit and you go, yes, (laughs) absolutely. And they are very absolutely you you significantly see that the this thought process is so slow, and I love watching it speed up when you're when you're training, and I will just say, you know, let the dog think because for me that's where this amazing stuff is taking place. I think that's probably true of my h p r s but Labradors have had have just sat or just responded, and like so the h p r s seem to need that thinking time maybe it's something to do with the instinctual hunting drive that spaniels and hbrs both have possibly both, yeah. yeah 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 um yeah i think it's, it's it is quite interesting to look at the um different gun dog breeds as well yeah um one of the things i noticed we did some self-control around food with the dogs and um one of the one of the things that was really interesting was um it was just really that the dog had to wait for five seconds with a piece of food in front of its face um, and we would present food repetitively and the dog had to keep still and wait for the food to be delivered so real simple exercise and what was interesting was when when the dog had to be still the the um labs really struggled because <laughs> they were like oh my god food and then the spaniels were like, I can just freeze and I can do this. And the spaniels did the stillness <laughs> bit really, really well. And the Labradors struggled. And then when we moved on to that, the dog had to do a slow head turn to follow the food while it was one and a half inches away from its face. The Labradors could do that really well because they'd learn impulse around food, but the spaniels couldn't move their head slowly. <laughs> <laughs> they would just move it really quickly. They just or... move their whole body so we actually had the whole yeah they were just like I can't just do this controlled movement thing of my head really slowly so they were just like fling their whole body it's on or off yeah you have to move completely or not move yeah and so we had to start with eye movement (laughs) to slow the head down Um, so yeah that was really interesting as well just to see how how different like from an impulse control point of view how it impacts them yeah it's really interesting yeah i mean one of the things that i often think about is with hbrs we've got the whole pointing element of things as well which just yeah. makes the whole like when i look, talk about you know flirt poles and the chuck it thing and the response to movement and that sort of thing it seems easier or more straightforward at least for spaniels because they don't have this whole other part of things which is pointing i don't know that makes it extra 
extra complicated to work out how to use some of these tools. Yeah, I, think. I can imagine. Yeah. Like, is this, is this, am I representing something before the shot, which you should be pointing or am I representing the movement that happens after the shot when it's falling from the sky or whatever, which you should be sitting in response to. So what, you know, what am I trying to replicate when I use whatever tool it is? Um, Yeah. And I think that's one of the things I say with people, especially with the float folds is people say, you know, like, what's the right way to use it? And I go, well, that does depend upon the dog in front of you. Um, yeah. I think it's a tool that you can use in lots of different ways to support different stuff. Yes. Um, you know, so so a lot of the people that I was seeing with the float pole have done the whole, if it runs along the ground, you can chase it. But if it flicks up, um, you they do auto sets. Um, so they were obviously coming to me because their dogs were steady on birds, but not on deer and hare. And I was like, yeah, but that's what you taught them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's why we, why there is that question about do they ever get the thing after they're steady? Because if you know if you did always use a release to the flirt pole as the reinforcer, <clears throat> then eventually the dog's going to discriminate between a real life situation when they sit and they are steady, and then the, the game runs away <laughs> when you release them. It's not there to be got, yeah. you know. And yeah. and the flirt pole situation when they are, so then you might end up with a sort of um blurt pole wise i'm going to interrupt this fabulous discussion to bring you today's whistle pause the whistle pause is where an ad break would usually be but i don't have an ad break i just have me and my whistle my trusty t12 on which i'm going to play you a tune sad thing about my whistle at the moment is that it's dying a little bit so bits of plastic have broken off so it will only blow if I blow it really loudly then a note will come out otherwise it's this kind of whispery hoarse airy breathy noise so I've got another whistle on order and I'd like to reassure you that the the whistle pause will improve in quality in future episodes now the reason we don't have an ad break here and you have this whistle pause instead is because I don't have a sponsor. I don't want a sponsor because I want to be completely free to recommend the products I want to recommend and I don't want to have to recommend a product that I don't believe in or love in order to get sponsorship. So there are some ways you can support me though because otherwise it is just me making this podcast. So, if you like this podcast, there are some simple things and free things that you can do. One is to share it and to tell other people about it, and to post it on social media, and to promote it whenever you can. The other thing you can do will benefit you as well, I hope. You can check out some of my courses, my online platform, forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, force-free gundog training and the accompanying workbook for it which is a planner called the workbook you can get both of these from amazon wherever you live that is the end of today's whistle pause let's get back to the show yeah and i think that for me yeah i think i think that's why for me it's important that the dog is um you create this mindset where they're okay with not having the thing they left Right. 
Um, I think that's really important. And I think, you know, generalized proofing, I always say to people, you know, people say, oh, I've got a dog that chases, I'm going to get a float pole. And I'm like, well, you know, it's just like if you get a bolting rabbit, your dog will just be steady to the bolting rabbit or it'll just be steady to the float pole. So you need to massively, massively generalize. Um, and I do auto sits to all sorts of stuff. So it is literally just generalized movement. Yeah, and you also sort of take these things out into the field because in your book you talk about you know taking the flirt pole out to the field and sort of having it on the ground so it's almost disguised to the dog so it doesn't yeah. look like a yeah. flirt pole and then you hunt up the dog and then how do you manage to do that while well, also walking with the dog and moving the flirt pole or do you have an assistant hiding so behind a bush? It's, it's much easier with an assistant, um, but I have a two-piece horse's lunge whip which is really quite long; it screws together, um, and because I hunt my spaniels really close anyway. Um, it enables me to kind of work them up and I can just pick that up. Like as we get near it, I can just pick the end up and flick it up. So I'll usually plant it out there beforehand. Right. And you can plant the bolting rabbit out there as well. But yeah. 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 So you kind of move from these situations where you're like maybe indoors with something yeah. which is obviously not game and you're just working on like rep after rep after rep. Yeah. And then you're trying to move it into the outdoor environment. And then there's a element of surprise like the dog not expecting this thing and you just throw it in when they're yeah. hunting away yeah. And, yeah 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 and I think you know if, if you've done a lot of that work is is you will you will get um because you've worked on movement and auto set is is you should just get those neurons should just fire and it gives you time <laughs> because the animal goes whoa I'm doing stop and then, you know, three seconds later, they possibly might decide to chase. But I always go, it's that stimulus and response. It gives you some time to play with. I know if um, a lot of people talk about teaching a chase recall, and I just say, you know, if my dogs like flushed a deer and then immediately ran after it, by the time I'd panicked, my brain had decided how it was going to function. I'd got my whistle in my mouth. They'd probably be in the next county. So they have to almost be able to go, oops, something just moved there. I must turn around and refocus on my handler. Yeah, it's really just, just again, just giving you that time and then you can get in there and do something else reinforcing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was just thinking you have to be a bit creative sometimes as well with these tools. I was thinking like with yes. my Vimer on a slate, one of the things that she found really hard, like she would be steady to the to the to the shot and the fall and then if it was a something that was not totally dead but it was like in death throes on the floor relatively close that would be the, the most difficult situation like it would be a few meters away moving um yeah that would be the hardest situation and so what i did is i got some you know these like um kids toys which like jiggle around and they're like, yeah. they make, they bump around on the floor and they make, sometimes they play music, but sometimes you can turn the music off because that's probably not very helpful for simulating a rabbit. Um, and then I would get a rabbit fur and I would use lots of elastic bands and I'd tie the, <laughs> the rabbit fur around to this jiggling thing. And then I would just sort of throw that out there sometimes um, when we were hunting until like, it's to simulate the, you know, I, I would fire a shot and then throw this out. And so, yeah, we worked on it by that. But sometimes I think you have to be a bit creative if you're not going to use traditional methods because it's all about proofing and gradually increasing the sort of distraction level the difficulty level of whatever it is that you're proofing against isn't it and that's where the skill is it's almost like an art yeah yeah it's just finding i found some um like catapult toys on amazon i've got um screaming monkeys and flying pigs (laughs) um which again yeah it's just something else bizarre that you can you can stick into 
um, into your training. So when the real thing does happen, they do just think um, it's it's kind of another crazy thing that you've put in the environment. I remember um, I always use the example um, last summer we were having a barbecue and there was some leftover meat. So I was bringing the food inside on a plate. And as I come into the kitchen, these pieces of kebab meat um, actually slid off the plate um and dropped onto the floor and stig literally just auto sat um and then and then pickles ran in and ate it (laughs) Um, probably represents the personalities and captures (laughs) (laughs) um and i just remember stig was like devastated thankfully there was a piece on the plate i could reward him with for doing his auto set but it was it was just really interesting because there was no it just happened it was it was literally just he didn't think about that at all it was just that food literally dropped down in front of him and he just sat um and i think for me you know that's that's what you're that's what you're aiming for is is just the environment just creates that different response yeah in your book you mentioned a, like when you were talking about using the chuck it and you talked about not just using a tennis ball because it doesn't bounce so well, but using a sponge ball or something. Yeah. That, yeah. Do you literally mean like a, like a, I don't know, like a soft foamy ball? Is that what you mean? Yeah. So they, they do um, like dog toys that you can buy kind of spongy balls and they're just a little bit more bouncier than tennis balls. Um, so they're usually like, they're not like a hard rubber ball, but it's more like a soft rubber. And yeah, so again, I just find with those that they're just they're just a little bit more bouncy and they go a little bit further. Um, And again, with that as well, it's about um, how you kind of release whatever it is and how it moves as well. So you find that some dogs will be perfectly fine with things that go up in the air. Um, and some dogs will then really struggle with stuff that goes out in the eye, the eye line. And also you have to consider the duration of the movement as well. So if a rabbit or deer gets up on an open field, then it's very, you've got real duration, visual distraction happening versus something yeah. that like pops into a hedge and has disappeared. And I think from a proofing point of view, we have to take that duration into account massively. Um, because you get a lot of dogs who stop, but then, you know, four seconds later, it's still in their eye line and they're like, I can't. And I usually find that most dogs struggle um, with stuff that moves within their eye line. So this is like when you're throwing the ball and you can kind of almost throw it laterally. So it kind of goes and it bounces with like quite long bounces along the ground. So it's it's simulating that thing running over open ground. Yeah, so what I love about the chuck it stick, because I'm not very good at throwing, (laughs) is is things go really far. Um, But yeah, so I'll kind of I'll kind of flick my wrist and send it out. What I love about the chuck it stick is is it's great because um, it can go far. And if you kind of um, flick it kind of out sideways from your waist height, um, then it's really kind of in the dog's eye line. And I also think you're kind of looking for like when you skim stones on the water that it kind of goes out and bounces along the ground. So you do create that duration. Yeah. Um, as 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 well. Um, I actually find with Stig, um, the chuck it stick with the spongy ball going out in his eye line is the most challenging thing for him. 
Is that trying to keep it quite low as well? So you're trying to sort of yeah. it, skim it along the ground, really, rather than too high up in the air. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's, he's he's like, if I do it over my shoulder, he's absolutely fine with that. He can deal with it, no problem. Um, but with when it goes out low to the ground in his eye line, you can see he's really, it's like heads flicking back at me and towards it. And he's, you can see he finds that much more challenging. Um, and I think all dogs are different. And I think it's about recognising... Um, I think sometimes when we're teaching impulse control, um, you know, we we talk about, I know from a behavioural point of view, we always talk about working the dog under threshold when we're dealing with things like fear and aggression. But I actually think when we're teaching impulse control, we've got to trigger the impulse for the dog to learn to control the impulse. Um, and I think that's that's kind of similar as the difference between teaching a dog to be calm and teaching a dog to be controlled in arousal yeah it's a bit like you need some of that stimulus don't you it's a bit like you couldn't teach a dog to not be reactive around other dogs without having another dog anywhere near you at all yeah <laughs> they, did. Work you. they did yeah. um they did some research on um, impulse control in humans and what they actually done was they they done an MRI scan on this lady and she was um like quite an impulsive person so she'd had um she was kind of gambling did lots of shopping she was in lots of debt because she liked to buy shoes she'd had a few relationships she liked to indulge herself in men as well um and so she was doing lots of shopping she was overweight she was doing lots of eating so she she had kind of this generalized impulsive behavior where if there was something in the environment she wanted she would just indulge herself in it and what she did was she changed her whole lifestyle so she 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 stopped spending money um, she started to work out she started to eat healthy decided to stay on her own for a while um and what they actually what they were looking at was was what happens in the brain that's different um to people who are impulsive and then people who who have got who demonstrate self-control and they were saying that you know once you change one behavior it becomes easier and easier then the more things that you the more things that you do and what was really interesting for me was when I did my behavioral stuff I with dogs I was always kind of taught that um that the limbic system and the cortex like one's working or the other's working and they don't kind of work together um and so if a dog was in a impulsive state then it was just that was functioning or if it was in a cognitive state then its cortex was functioning um and what was interesting was with this research is is what they actually found was um the neuron firing that occurred in the um limbic system um when this lady was presented with an impulse or something like shoes or food <laughs> um is um, the limbic system was still firing in exactly the same way, but what had actually changed was there was new neuron firing happening in the cortex. So it's this, it, what they were saying was the cortex was regulating the limbic system. Um, so that really got me thinking about, you know, this is, if, if, if this is, you know, I think primitively we all function in the same way. Um <laughs> Um, from 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 a brain point of view and you know I was like well you know really with dogs that's that's what we're looking for um is that um is that the cortex regulates is regulating the limbic system so I thought that was really interesting as well is that it wasn't that um those desires were were still kind of triggered 
it was just the fact that they were regulating it. It's really fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. It yeah. gives you hope as well. It gives you like, yeah. the more you understand the science, the more everything you're doing makes sense and you feel reinforced. <laughs> yeah. And, and as you said before, I think it just enables you to understand, you know, it, it helps you have a little bit more empathy and understanding for the expectations that, that we have on our docs as well, you know, is, is, is it smart? You know, we're not asking them to do simple stuff. Um, especially these kind of dogs who were, you know, genetically selected to be impulsive yeah. <laughs> and drivey and predatory and, and all those other things. Um, and then we've got to put the work in to put some control around that. That's true. You know, I was also just thinking while you were talking, I wanted to ask you about your farm. <laughs> You're kind of your in your interview, um, your podcast interview with Nick. You talked about hoping that in a few years' time you would have everything that you did online, and that you would be able to buy a farm, and you know it would just you'd be doing online work mainly. And I was thinking about yeah. that in relation to lockdown. I was wondering how things are going for you in relation to that, whether you did have your farm or not, um, and yeah, where you are with all your your hopes and dreams from two years ago. Yeah, so so farm is on the cards. <laughs> Um, we stopped we stopped house hunting during lockdown obviously um so yeah that's that's something we are we are looking at um I do have an online community I've got about 70 members um in there that um we mostly do gun doggy stuff in there (laughs) it's mostly professional trainers and enthusiasts so we usually talk about just being professional dog trainers and impulse control and gun dogs um so yeah it's um I've managed to my training center waggle Wuffins kind of functions without me which is fabulous um so yeah so it's been a it's been a kind of long haul and a lot of change I'm a bit of a control freak so I've had to learn to delegate <laughs> yeah I guess we're saying some of this backwards because I should have probably said where you're based they were, are you sort of are you still based is it in Bury is it north of Manchester yeah yeah so yeah. we're still based in Bury I've got my my training center um so I now have three dog trainers that work in there doing all the classes I do the gun dog class once a week um and yeah so that all kind of um that works I've got an online portal and system so that's still growing I'm just in the process of doing a whole revamp on that it's I started it in 2016 it needs a bit of updating um there's a lot of content all over the place so um I'm just reviewing all that at the moment um and yeah my goal is to to look at building building on the online stuff a little bit more I do love that you know certainly over lockdown I've learned that um I thought I I guess that I like the face-to-face more than I thought I did <laughs> right so you felt a bit isolated and yeah I, I think it was um it was quite challenging online I think the interest in learning curve for me was for most of my customers they're mostly enthusiasts they're really into dog training they've already got um a substantial amount of knowledge and experience um and they're really lovely to teach online and what we found was that the new puppy owners really struggled i think puppy owners struggle with puppies anyway um but i think supporting them online was challenging in comparison to what we can provide face to face 
Um, but you, you do have your smart pup boxes as well. We probably should mention those. Yeah, so that was that was rather bizarre because that took off brilliantly during lockdown. <laughs> during lockdown, yeah. I was like, this virus has nothing to do with me. <laughs> 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 and the launch of my smart pup boxes. Um, yeah, so I've um, we started that. That's kind of ticking along nicely. Um, because we ended up having to do all the online stuff, um, it's kind of taken up a bit of my time um, with Smart Pup. Um, we've got a lot of, there's a lot of trainers and behaviourists have signed up to it. Um, so Smart Pup is like you get, is it monthly? Monthly people will get sent a box which matches their puppy's stage of development. And in the box is, is there's toy and a treats and just some goodies. And there's also a booklet about training and things to work on that that month is that right that yeah right? so so I kind of devised a whole 12 month program um so it starts at eight weeks and works through till the, your puppy is 12 months old so it's really supporting new puppy owners for the first year of the puppy's life right um and in the box they have a um there's a training booklet it's about 26 pages um, they also have a training planner and stickers and anything they need for training that month. So any equipment, any toys, training aids um, is all in the box. Um, so the idea is, is it's just delivered to your door. You've not got to go out and buy dog treats or toys or equipment. Um, is it is literally it's just there for you to be able to work for. So it's really just making it convenient. Um, I think a lot of people struggle with committing to classes um with their busy lives and also um really trying to get people to be aware that um puppies need more than six weeks puppy class yes Um, from from a from a training point of view um yeah and if people kind of live in rural areas and they're struggling to get classes it's really just a way of providing providing support to people And you do um, you ship these only in the UK? So if you've got people listening in for America or Europe, they yeah. They... So so we're currently just I'm I'm limited from a um, I've had quite a few people ask me um, who are abroad about it, um, and I am going to look into because what I can't do is send the treats through, right? Um, but I could probably say I can still send the equipment and the booklets and so on. Um, so I am looking at that. We also have a breeder scheme as well. So we've got a few breeders who've signed up to be smart pup breeders. They have to re- meet my 22 criteria as a responsible breeder, which is really early neurological stimulation, health testing, um, you know, breeding so many times, only having so many breeding bitches. Um, really just it's your generalized responsible dog owner stuff and what they can do is when they sign up they get to use our smart pup breeder logo and they um, get to purchase month one boxes at a discount so they can actually send all their new puppies home to their new homes with the month one puppy box and their puppy owners get a reduction, a voucher to have a reduced subscription as well if they then want to carry on from month two to ten. Wow, that's excellent. And are, yeah. is the, are the smart pup boxes also useful for people who want to go on and work their dogs and for gun dogs? But presumably they have to also be useful for all breeds of puppies. They're not too gun dog specific. Is that 
Yeah, so so a lot of the stuff in is is kind of is clicker training. Um, there's playing there. There's toys. There's some scent work stuff. Um, it's really it it is kind of generalized puppy stuff. There, it does go through the impulse control stuff. So a lot of the stuff in mission control, um, is is in smart pup as well. So it's a progressive program. So there's loads of impulse control stuff through there. Um, so a lot of the exercises they're set into kind of categories of self-control relationship and obedience um, and it all progresses so so you start with puppy auto sits um, and then you progress on to auto sit to food bowl auto sit to gates and then auto sits to thrown items drop food off surfaces and um, so, so it progresses a lot of the exercises same with the heel work training is all progressed there's lots of we teach we teach the stop whistle in there um so i've had a few trainers who've signed up um and gone through the process and um i've gone on to work their dogs i think one of them has just passed its um gun dog grades one and two right <laughs> um, that went through the program so yeah absolutely it's i've had a few behaviorists have took their new puppies through it as well yeah, I really like having a structure. It's really sort of like even yeah. when you're to train stuff, it's really good to have something written down that says do this and do this and do this. It just gives you a sense of, you know, that it's all maybe it's splitting for the handler. <laughs> it's showing you, you know, achievable realistic goals for this week or this month rather than feeling overwhelmed by everything you know you've got to train. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um a lot of a lot of the feedback I've had is it is nice to have that kind of just to have that structure monthly of, of stuff to work on and I think a lot of people can go to classes and end up running over the same stuff yeah repetitively and this all, all this training is obviously designed for you to do at home and in the real world as well um in different situations so you know we start off with puppy scent work um, and we move it to outside doing scent work in the woods um, and hiding things outside as well relationship games so yeah it's it's kind of all in there it's been um quite quite extensive <laughs> creating it yeah, <laughs> it felt yeah. like throwing the towel in a few times well, it sounds like writing 12 books rather than just one book yeah well I think I worked out is is there's 10 booklets and literally there's 6,000 words a booklet gosh um and then they went off for design um so I had a designer do them all and then they've come back for proofreading lots of times so um it's 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 been really hard work but now it's kind of done I'm like oh (laughs) (laughs) and so if people are listening and they've got an older puppy so then they're not going to be able to pick this up with an eight-week puppy do you recommend they just jump right in with whatever month that would fit their puppy or do you recommend going back and covering the early material or so we do do a training games box which is for which is a one-off box and that's for kind of dogs of all ages um what I can do if you like is I've got a discount code for that so I can give you that if you like yeah, that'd be cool I can put it in the show notes and then yeah yeah, yeah. I'll give you a discount it's 25% off um so yeah there's 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 that which we created which is kind of found it, it is just um it's a training game spot so it's just foundation impulse control stuff um so I am looking at progressing that one on the puppy one is very progressive so the downside to it is you can't just drop in because you need to have done the other stuff I've had a couple of people who kind of come in a little bit late because it is from eight to 12 weeks the first box so they've come in at 16 weeks and what I have done is just sent them the first two boxes out right 
um, so they can kind of work up and, and catch on that, catch up on that. I think if somebody was a trainer or an enthusiast, they could probably realistically maybe drop in at month two, month two or month three. Um, but I think if you hadn't owned a dog before, it, it, you would struggle. Well, it's been super amazing talking to you, Jane. I think um, I should probably let you go now. Um, but just if people want to find out more about you, where do they go? Do you want to give like your website or how, how people can find yeah, so, like that? So we've got, um, Wagawuffins, www.wagawuffins.com is our website. Um, we're also on Instagram, social media, um, Facebook and Twitter as well. Uh, all under Wagawuffins and also Smart Pup is on Instagram and Facebook as well. Right. And SmartPub also has its own website, isn't it? It's SmartPub. Oh, yes. So that's, yeah, it's www.smartpupbox.com. There is a link from the Wagwuffin site through to there as well. So thank you, Jane, for your time. It's been super deeper talking to you today. Um, Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me.